0: Welcome to Champions of Care, a champion chair podcast and your go-to resource for industry leading insights regarding medical seating and their applications.
1: Welcome to the Champions of Care podcast. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. Today my guest is Brian Nyquist, Executive Director of the National Infusion Center Association. He's been a dedicated advocate to access for care for almost 20 years. Through NICA, Nyquist advocates for patient access to in-office infusion and injectable medications among autoimmune and chronic disease communities. Brian, welcome.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: So on the podcast, I mean, we cover a, a wide swath of topics, but today we're tackling something very specific, and that's infusion care. So Brian, can you give us a primer on infusion care for patients and how the National Infusion Center Association supports providers of infusion therapy?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So infusion therapy is the administration of medicine directly into the bloodstream, uh, typically over the course of ranging from 30 minutes to several hours. Um, Some of the medications that kind of we're all familiar with taking are, you know, you go down to your retail pharmacy, you you hand them your prescription, you get a a vial of of medications, uh, right? Typically oral medications, but infusion medications are, are, are much different. Uh, and, and many of the newer, sort of more technologically advanced medications that we're seeing would actually be degraded in the in your GI tract. So if you took it orally, that medication would be broken down before it was able to get into your bloodstream. So those medications can't be taken orally. Instead, they're administered directly into the bloodstream through infusion or indirectly into the bloodstream through injection. Um, Injection under the skin is called subcutaneous injection or injection into the muscle is referred to as intramuscular injection. Um, Either either route of administration, these medications are typically administered by a healthcare provider in a clinical setting. Um, So there are three settings in which patients can receive these provider-administered medications, the hospital, the physician office, or the home. The hospital is the most expensive care setting for these medications, and most of them actually can't be administered in the home for various reasons. The most well-known type of infusion therapy that we're all likely familiar with is chemotherapy. But today's infusion and injectable medications have extended well beyond the cancer space and are actually being used to treat many additional complex chronic diseases like autoimmune diseases, in addition to rare diseases and diseases that were historically difficult or even impossible to treat with those conventional oral medications that we're all familiar with. So these infusion medications are are really changing the way that we manage some of the nation's sickest and most vulnerable patients that are living with some of the most complicated and challenging disease to manage. Um, And the goal is obviously to, to improve these patients' quality of life and reduce the physical, emotional, and economic burdens of many devastating diseases that they're living with. And these types of medications... Uh, in, in many cases have been the first sort of treatment option that's been able to do that and effectively manage disease in, in some of these patients. So NICA was formed to support patients' access to these medications and support the non-hospital infusion providers that treat them so that these patients can access medications in a more economically responsible alternative to hospital care settings. So our mission, our mission is technically to improve patients' access to provider-administered medications through advocacy, education, and resource
1: development. I want to explore just the the types of of chronic diseases we're talking about, because you're right. A lot of the awareness is probably in oncology, but there are many non-oncology diseases that can be treated with infusion therapy. You started to mention some of those autoimmune diseases. Can you go into um, just how, I guess, wide a, a spectrum of diseases that we're talking about. I mean, I understand it could be any anything from antibiotic applications to pain management applications, all of those sorts of things, right?
0: Yeah, and it, it uh, absolutely so. There are a lot of antibiotics that that are needing to be administered directly into the bloodstream, um, as well as a number of other other types of of, of medications that are administered through either infusion or injection. Um, one of the newer classes of medications are are commonly referred to as biologics. um, and it's because they are made they are biological products made in living cells. Um, so they're very expensive to manufacture. They're very complicated to manufacture. Um, and And so, based on the 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 molecule size and complexity for these medications those those molecules of drug would be broken down in the in the uh, in the GI tract, so which is why they have to be administered directly or indirectly into the bloodstream. Um, but I think a lot of a lot of folks, although they may not be familiar with infusion or biologics, um, I think a lot of people have heard of some of these autoimmune diseases that are being effectively managed with some of these medications, like rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, multiple sclerosis, lupus. Uh, psoriasis psoriatic arthritis um, so a lot of the the diseases that people may have heard about but aren't really really intimately familiar with uh, are are among some of those more challenging diseases to manage um, and in many cases patients that are prescribed these types of infusion drugs it's because those conventional treatment options like those oral medications just haven't worked in managing their disease progression and you know improving quality of
1: life so Brian, the uh, world of infusion care uh, can be a, a complex area to uh, to enter into because there's not a whole lot of understanding about it. And so I'm curious how you came to NICA and how your background helped you better understand the challenges that infusion therapy faces.
0: Yeah, so so 20 years ago, I had no idea what the what medical benefit was, right? Um, so in the insurance kind of in our health insurance, plan design, you've got services that are primarily covered across two benefits. You've got your pharmacy benefit, which covers all the the retail kind of prescription drugs that that we're all familiar with. And then you've got the medical benefit, which covers your outpatient services. You go to see a physician or a specialist, those services are covered under the medical benefit. But what most people don't realize is there are a category of medications that are covered under that medical benefit because those medications like infusion drugs or injectable drugs are administered in that clinical setting incident to that physician visit. Once I started with NICA, I kind of start digging in and really understanding the landscape that that was something that kind of wasn't apparent to me before, but I started understanding. Um, and so that was the entire world that I was starting to live in when I, when I came to NICA. Um, I would say, but before I, uh, I came over to NICA. I was familiar with the, the concept of these therapeutic biologic medicines. Uh, I was I was, in, I was doing some genetics research uh, while I was in undergrad over 15 years ago, um, kind of researching how we could manipulate the, the genome of other organisms to, to make different things, right? Medications being, being one of them. And then uh, immediately prior to joining NICA, I was the policy analyst for the Texas House Committee on Public Health in the Texas legislature when this biosimilar substitution bill came through. So unlike for conventional drugs, we have generics, right, which are identical, therapeutically equivalent alternatives to that brand name drug. Well, that concept doesn't actually translate to these biologic medicines. Um, It's, it's, impossible, technologically impossible, to create an identical copy of these medications. The closest that we can really get is a drug that's biosimilar. And so there was a legislation that came through that kind of established all sorts of parameters in terms of when it was appropriate to switch patients to to different medications, et cetera. But throughout the course of working on that legislation, um, I'd really started to understand the benefit design the challenges that patients are starting to encounter. These drugs are some of the most expensive drugs that we have. Um, coverage is is not great, and, um, and so that was kind of really my first first glimpse into that. As I began visiting various infusion centers and meeting different patients, I I quickly noticed a a significant disparity in terms of standards of care, as well as practice across these different facilities. And similarly, as I started working through the access challenges and barriers to care that patients were were experiencing, I began to notice notice trends. Uh, And then as I began assembling a a panel of industry experts to sort of work on some of these issues, we began uh, developing and compiling best practices. To try and sort of reduce some of those disparities in terms of quality of care, standards of practice, etc., uh, and then as legislators and rulemakers uh, were introducing ill-informed reform strategies that would be quite disruptive to access to care, I started noticing disconnects between, you know, the the kind of strategy that they're taking to to reform this this landscape and what the implications would be. Um, And then as I began developing relationships with with hundreds of infusion centers and hearing from thousands of patients, I noticed common themes uh, and began to really start to understand what those challenges are, what those barriers to care are, what are the most critical threats to the sustainability of these non-hospital care settings, and what responsible reform would actually look like. Um, And then obviously the, the absence of said responsible reform really became noticeable and apparent. At that point,
1: so Brian, I understand that in your work uh, speaking to uh, to legislators, there wasn't a very good uh, familiarity, or actually, I, I'd venture to say, a pretty good misunderstanding of what infusion therapy was and where it was being administered. Uh, can you share that story?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is kind of really just highlights the the disconnect between. Legislators' strategies at, at reforming healthcare, right? Particularly this aspect of healthcare, and and it's kind of that disconnect between what they're trying to do, how they're trying to do it, and what's actually going going to happen. So in in 2016, um, the the federal government, right, the agency that runs Medicare, essentially, uh, proposed reform to to cut providers reimbursement specifically infusion providers reimbursement to a threshold that would be financially inviable for them to keep keep treating those patients they would be losing losing their shirt losing money hand over fist to keep treating these medicare patients so we were concerned that hundreds of thousands of of medicare patients some of our nation's sickest and most vulnerable patients that have extraordinarily high burdens of disease would have to be disrupted and basically sent into a hospital at significant increase in per-patient, per-treatment costs. It's a problem for patients because they're struggling to afford their you know, cost share associated with that treatment, and it's bad news for Medicare because they would be multiplying a huge volume of drug spend that much more. So I, I went in and met with CMS leadership to to kind of go over our, our issues and and try to find a viable and responsible strategy to where we could develop an all win solution, right? We can reduce drug spend, we can improve value for for Medicare patients, and we can connect Medicare patients with the care that they need without being disruptive. So as I kind of I came to them with data, showed here, you know, five office-based infusion providers. Here's the, the number of Medicare patients that they treat that they would no longer be able to treat if this reform were to were to be implemented. Um, and then here's the actual dollar number of, of medical benefit drug spend that would be routed into a hospital at at least two to five times increase per patient per treatment. So help us understand how this strategy is actually going to reduce Medicare's cost liability for, for medical benefit drugs, covenant or Part B, and how this is going to in, improve and reduce patients' cost share. How is it going to reduce patients' out-of-pocket costs? Because from my perspective, they're going to have to go to a hospital. It's going to cost them more. It's going to cost Medicare more. Obviously, no nobody wins. So um, as I'm kind of running through my data, trying to help them understand what, what the implications of this change would be, they interrupted me and said, wait a minute, time out are you telling me that these medications are being administered outside of hospitals and outside of oncology clinics in those hospitals? I said, yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what I'm telling you. Actually, there's a significant proportion of of that medical benefit drug spend that's actually going outside of hospitals. But what you're doing will send a huge majority, if not all of that, into hospitals. Not not a good thing. Not what you guys are trying to accomplish. And they came back and said, wait a minute. So are there are there just these five that we're talking about? Are there more of these? And I had to then inform them that actually there are thousands of them. um, Right. Which is critically important because they represent the lowest cost care setting for many of these drugs. As you know, these me- these people are very expensive to manage. They have extraordinarily high burdens of disease, physical, emotional, as well as economic, and it is absolutely critical that they effectively manage their disease, which would reduce other medical service consumption. So I know it seems counterintuitive, but by actually spending you know, two dollars on medication today, you'll you'll save ten dollars in healthcare tomorrow.
1: That was probably quite a an eye opener for them because. The fact that they didn't realize that this was that these infusion therapy centers r- really existed—it sounded like
0: it was, yeah. To say it was an eye opener is is a little bit of of an understatement. It was concerning. It was it was shocking and and disconcerting. Um, but you got to start somewhere. So unfortunately, that was that was kind of the turning point, uh, and it's just unfortunate that it it wasn't until 2016, um, and we're still seeing kind of. Poorly informed and misguided reform strategies coming out of CMS and, and HHS as well as uh, Congress up there in D.C.
1: One thing that um, also in my notes here, um, and this makes sense considering the, uh, the knowledge base or the lack of knowledge uh, around infusion therapy, but you say that non-oncology specialties are a good 50 years behind oncology specialties in terms of infusion therapy. Will you explain that?
0: Yeah. So oncology care has has been among the most expensive care uh, in our healthcare system for, for decades. And non-oncology specialties didn't really begin using these types of really expensive medications like these, these biologics until about 20 years ago. So oncology was the first specialty to, to really heavily integrate and use these, these more expensive class of specialty drugs. Um, so they're much more seasoned when it comes to the coverage issues, the operational hurdles and the access barriers, and then the, the sort of threats to the sustainability of that care model compared to those non-oncology specialties. So as such, that oncology space is, has over time come together, they've been able to band together unlike any other specialty when a threat to that oncology care model arose we saw instant mobilization across stakeholder groups with a level of coordination as well as collaborative momentum that no other specialty has really been able to achieve or in operationalize so that that's kind of what i was trying to kind of capture in that. So this this whole level of coordination, uh, sort of synergy and collaboration across stakeholder groups has kind of evolved into to be the oncology's secret sauce, so to speak, uh, that has really preserved cancer patients' access to care and oncologists' ability to continue treating them. Um, It didn't happen overnight. Um, It took about 50 years, which is why I said that the non-oncology specialties are about 50 years behind if the non-oncology specialties w- were able to band together with similar coordination and cohesion, their collective voice would outweigh that of oncology by probably a factor of 10. There are just so many more patients in the autoimmune disease space and the rare disease communities, uh, and then providers across those different specialties that when, when combined together are just so much more numerous than than the oncology space. But They've just been historically really unorganized, and there hasn't been um, really a lot of collaboration across those specialties when most of these access issues and these operational threats and these barriers to care that patients are experiencing are not specialty related. They're not specialty specific. They're infusion specific. They're really medical benefit drug access specific. And so that doesn't doesn't really fall to just one specialty. If it affects you know, a, room, a, a rheumatoid arthritis patient, it's likely going to affect a Crohn's disease patient, and a multiple sclerosis patient, and a lupus patient, uh, as well as a cancer patient. So, that's that's kind of the the unfortunate reality of of the situation from a coordination, cohesion, and sort of collaboration perspective. And it's something that NICA, is trying to work on it's one of the reasons we were formed is to try and, and span across those non-oncology specialties to defragment those efforts and try and you know build the coordination the cohesion and drive collaborative momentum to to overcome these shared challenges and threats
1: Well speaking of that then I mean how do we bring this subject more to the forefront and I guess promote a better understanding of the the benefits and um the challenges that infusion preparations outside of a hospital setting face?
0: Yeah, it's it's a million-dollar question. But step one, do the podcast. Uh, Check. No. But (laughs) in in all seriousness, though, uh, we do have a lot of work to do to educate legislators, regulators, uh, insurers, as well as the general public. Most people just really don't understand what infusion patients are going through. They don't understand the disease management journey these patients have endured. They don't understand the value that effective disease management has brought to the lives of millions. And they don't understand the challenges that providers are facing in providing care for these patients. And so they're really seeing a struggle uh, in these among these decision makers, legislators, regulators, et cetera, to see past the dollars, to see past the dollar signs that are being spent on these medications. So they're... Um, they're, they've actually been really blind to the long-term cost savings associated with reducing healthcare consumption. So, if we can effectively manage these patients to achieve a state of clinical stability, where their disease state is is stable, it's not progressing, they are have they don't have to go see their doctor as much, they don't have to go see their specialist as much, they're not having to get you know uh, labs and and diagnostics and blood tests as frequently, and they're avoiding having to go to the emergency room in the case that their disease flares and it becomes a medical emergency they're not having to get uh, as much hospital care either so like that that whole aspect of this kind of care coordination care management kind of continuum is is really lost on the majority of sort of basically anybody who hasn't been in this delivery channel anybody who who doesn't have an autoimmune disease or doesn't know somebody that's been kind of going through this type of care um, most people just don't understand how difficult it is how challenging it is right They they don't understand that having access to that right drug at the right time in the most economically responsible setting can be the difference between being disabled and being able to work uh, you know retaining the function of your hands being able to play with your kids a lot of the things that, that the general population the general public and of take for granted are things that these patients are struggling with every every day um so it's there's just an enormous kind of awareness deficit that that we're trying to trying to solve we're trying to figure out how to solve that uh that problem so we're we've engaged and we've built out a robust education program kind of multifaceted, multi-channel um, to try and start building some of that awareness, we've we've created a, a an awareness campaign that we call Share Your Chair. Uh, we're encouraging infusion patients to to kind of take a selfie when they're at their infusion center getting their treatment uh, and share it across their preferred social media channel with the with the hashtag Share Your Chair is uh, in an effort to kind of help us generate and build awareness. Like one one kind of. One characteristic of these patients that I think is really different from cancer patients is most of these folks don't look sick on the outside. They don't—they don't look like they are physically ill or that they're battling a chronic disease. Um, unlike, you know, a lot of cancer patients, particularly if they're on chemotherapy or or radiation therapy, they've lost their hair. They—they they don't look particularly healthy, right? Um, that's why a lot of these autoimmune diseases are called invisible illnesses or invisible diseases. And so that's kind of a big emphasis of, of that share your share campaign is, is to try and help the public understand that, look, you know, your kids, teachers, your, your pastor, the, the, the person that's checking you out at the grocery store could have one of these diseases. They could be getting infusion care and that could be the difference between them being a productive member of society and, and being, you just having that, that significantly reduced quality of life. So it's, it's a big challenge. We're trying to figure out how to overcome that challenge. Um but it's it's definitely going to take a village. so we're we're working to kind of build the relationships, build collaboration and work with other groups that that represent patients within these different disease states and within these different uh, specialties to to try and educate. You know, decision makers, legislators, regulators, insurance companies, and and then also the general public as well.
1: Well, Brian, I think this is a fantastic start to that education campaign because you're right. I don't think there's a great understanding of the challenges that, uh, that uh, chronic disease patients face. And I think this is a great reminder of the fact that uh, there are people trying to function every single day and they're doing the very best they can. Uh, but they need that medication and access to medication is such a prevalent topic for so many people in the country, but imagine it 10 times more difficult when you're dealing with a medication that has to be injected or, you know, sub- subcutaneously delivered. Those challenges can seem unsurmountable, and so the work that Nike is doing is, is uh, uh, noble, and I'm excited to see what topics we cover in future podcasts. So Brian, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity.
1: And that does it for this episode of Champions of Cure podcast. Until next time, I'm Shelby Skirhawk.